Hi, good morning. Um, as Alice said, uh, Shelby, Eric, Shearston, Jeff, and I in October went to a, a conference in Portland called Delight. And really the, the point of the conference was um, about building better user experiences in the digital realm. And so first off, um, the, the conference was held at the Portland Art Museum. So if you just want to start out with delight as place, then if you're used to sitting in the you know, basements of Marriott uh, hotels, when you go to conferences, you, you would understand that their first step in creating a really great user experience was to hold it in the Portland Art Museum. It was a really, um, it was just a really lovely place to meet. It changed the tone, or it set the tone, and um, for me it was an example of delight being, uh, not all delight has to be focused on digital, that you can create great delightful analog experiences, and the Portland Art Museum was one of those. So um, I sort of looked at the conference as an opportunity for people who are working in business, organizations, the tech industry, and the design community to come together and share ideas about user experience. The tagline for the conference was thought leaders who care about building great experiences. So for two days, the five of us were thought leaders. That was kind of, <laughs> kind of, was kind of fun. Um, it's sponsored by uh, a company called iSight. This is the second year that they've held the conference. and, and uh, iSight's tagline is that they help brands to deliver exceptional digital experiences. So they're located in Portland. They're also located in Massachusetts. And if you look at their client list, they're everybody from you know big corporations to nonprofits to universities. And I think essentially what they do is they go in and they help people or organizations deliver on their brand, really, but help to translate that brand into exceptional experiences that meet the needs of users and meet the needs of the company. Um, Bonnie, you asked a good question, so what is delight? And um, so I, I, we thought about it in, in different ways, just amongst the five of us, and then also listened over the course of a couple of days as people tried to sort of land on what that means, really. And I think we all agreed that it sort of began with Apple's as the benchmark for product design and experience. You know, that what they did was really transformative in how people sort of interacted with technology. But there are, are other things going on. Um, there's a huge momentum going on with respect to design. It's not just aesthetic, <coughs> excuse me, form and function, but interaction and social construction. That now things, it's really, we, we know that the technology is in place, and so there's a huge marketplace of ideas. And the, it's, it's ideas now that people are trying to land on. And at the, at the crux of those ideas are, what can we do to help really create transformative experiences? Because that's what will be um, successful, I think monetarily. But, um, and that people aren't really, it's, it's not about anymore just businesses and organizations creating a message, but co-creating experience. And part of this is, is really driven by uh, a sense of urgency that's created by technology, but that's opportunity as well. And there's a fierce competition for things to be good and useful. 
And of course, it's what Silicon Valley is talking about when they're talking about how to identify the next best thing. That's sort of uh, the buzzword is delight. For myself, if I want to land on something, so it's an abstract conception. And you could get there and interpret it many different ways. For me, I thought, ha, huh, delight would be, an example of delight would have been um, if Apple had, had volunteered and brought their tremendous resource and capability to healthcare.gov, then we might have had, you know, a really, an experience that was focused on people and the user as opposed to, you know, um, the insurance industry. So to me, that's, that kind of encapsulates how I think about it. Um, there were, uh, um, you know, I didn't give you the setup. <laughs> Shelby and I are sort of doing broad themes and then uh, Shearston and Jeff and Eric are going to give examples of how we're trying to, you know, efforts here at TRI to, to consider the user in what we do. So here's some broad themes. Um, you can think about delight as brain function. Um, essentially, we're hardwired for surprise. We're hardwired for pleasure. And that um, we're in the process of learning in a digital world and there is no reason that um, we can't really address the complexities by building digital experiences to be enjoyable and to resonate with what it means to be human. And so that's a, a really big broad theme. Um, for people working in service and education, which is us, I, I think that what we run up against a lot of times is that because grants are prescriptive, we don't think about these kinds of things. You know, we think about delivering on the, the grant, and we don't often think about, um, you know, who, who are we, you know, who we serve and what our users look like um, as we move forward and, you know, kind of creating digital environments for, for all of our work. So it's a challenge to begin to think about it. Um, the other thing is delight is is uh, you could think of delight as connected experiences. Um, it's a lot of building online work is interpretive and um, sometimes it's really hard to create integrated experiences in that environment. But there's some basic tips and I thought this was um, useful that it really helps, well, that the difficulties stem from just a misunderstanding of the integration of purpose. And so it's really important to know your vision. It's important to understand your brand and understand what the expression of that vision and that brand looks like. Not just for yourselves, but also what it looks like from the perspective of the user. And that when you understand those things from your customer or user perspective, then you develop, you structure your service or your product and choose the technology that you need that both meet, that both meet the needs of that second thing, really your user. So I thought that was a pretty um, revelatory little piece. You can also think of delight as change. Um, the, the presentation was by um, a woman at, at Harvard who was hired to be the digital strategist for the university. So they had no real big map for their digital strategy and her job was to create um, uh, a digital Harvard that was warm and um, appealing. 
And she said, well, you know, this is a 378-year-old institution that has a lot of structure. And um, she, she looked at things. She said, well, hmm, they have a really vibrant uh, news um, setup, digital news, but it's really highly controlled. And they had lots of social media streams that the university sort of, you know, marginalized and figured, well, we don't have control over those, so they aren't, they don't really, we don't own them. And um, her approach was really to get the university to see that um, <clears throat> by letting go a little bit of what they were controlling at the news top and integrating, um, you know, reaching out and integrating the social media streams that they could, con they had much better content, content was more relevant, they had much deeper engagement, and in, and in fact, the lesson was that in controlling less, you can sometimes increase your influence. And so, I think those are, that was also a pretty, uh, an interesting little uh, piece of information. Delight is also being agile. Um, it, it used to be in the, in the age of, of Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In other words, you know, corporate culture could really derail whatever your corporate strategy is. And now it's really a culture of customers. And um, that's a, a big shift. And so companies are moving from much, uh, uh, they're, they're flatter and broader. Um, they can change more quickly. And that it's really that what's happening in business and, and you know, I don't know how much this applies to us, but people are finding more success in not trying to really reinvent the future, but by figuring out what the consumer wants next. Um, there were some nice little pieces about data. If any of you um, hang out in, in Google at all, you can guess that businesses obsess about the data that they get related to their digital presence. And so um, the fellow that is that delivered this piece was from NPR. He sort of helps public radio stations look at their data and figure out, you know, what you're doing with your audience. And so his suggestions are that data is, um, we don't become optimizers of data, that it's the platform from which we, we, we leap. We look at what we, where we are and decide, well, what direction do we want to go? We don't get stuck in trying to just increase the numbers in one particular spot. And that we needed to think of data not as goals or milestones, but as opportunities for continuous learning. Um, a fellow named Golden Krishna, which I thought was really good, um, <laughs> he delivered uh, um, just sort of that reminder that uh, the best interface is no interface, that we should always remember to embrace typical processes instead of embracing screens. So you don't need a, a digital calendar on your hairdryer, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> don't ask, don't put more than people need and don't ask, you know, don't think that just because you're sitting there in front of tech that it's important to add more features, that you really keep things elegant, simple, and useful. Don't make people do things they wouldn't normally do make digital processes work for the user, and create systems that adapt for individual needs. And then the, the last one was um, delight as listening. Part of the, one of the themes that, um, that I thought kept reoccurring was this idea that it's really hard to change organizations um, and to really f get organizations to shift 
to you know user centric kinds of concerns and that often especially in businesses organizations are siloed and um, you know people are in charge of marketing or people in, are in charge of product design or people you know there's just a, people deliver the service there's a within a, within structures people's touch points with consumers or users varies and that it's really important to in in order to really get the human perspective that you need to bring lots of variety into development processes and so here were some I thought good tips for bringing different kinds of people together but when you look at them you know it's like it's just duh. be humble when bringing people together to share work create safe environments for sharing ideas offer support when it's needed foster cross silo knowledge sharing make customer experience infectious and thank people for their input and energy so those are the broad themes Shelby will talk a little bit about being a human <laughs> okay so the conference started out with um, this gal Genevieve Bell she's from Intel um, and she introduced the conference with her presentation called being human in a digital world and she's by nature an anthropologist so you'll see kind of those themes throughout her um, ideas and she just talked about how, how technology has and has not changed our human needs um, the one thing that she kind of started out with was technology hasn't changed our love for a good story. Whether we read it in the newspaper, whether, whether we read it on our iPad, or face-to-face, -face, we still and always will love a good story. Um, and another quote was just, technology is changing us as fast as it's changing itself. So here are the five things that technology hasn't changed in our human needs. First off, we still need friends and family. That's core to our, to our beings. And, um, Pairing with that, the second thing is we need to belong to a community, and specifically a community that share the same interests and share the same values that we have. And then the third thing is that we still want to have a meaningful life. We want to um, have a sense of belonging, and this gives us a sense of purpose that we're working towards something bigger than ourselves. Um, the fourth thing is we need objects to, to talk about who we are, so our phones, the way we express ourselves in clothing, um, and our cars, they kind of define our character, and so we need these kind of objects to, to still define who we are. And the fifth thing is, is that we are probably still going to continue to keep secrets and tell lies. That's just something that we all do. Um, you can see that in online dating and all the privacy issues that have come up, and so these are kind of the five things that technology hasn't changed on a basic human need. And here are the things that technology has changed. Um, we now worry our, about our reputation more than ever. Um, again, the concept of privacy just has completely shifted. And so we constantly want to appear like we have it all together and stuff. Um, the second thing is we need to be bored and we want to be surprised. Um, she talked a lot about how boredom, we don't want to experience it anymore because we're constantly being attacked by, you know, news articles and stuff. But she talked about how boredom facilitates that creativity and innovation that when we stop and are bored, then our brain chemistry changes similar to our sleep patterns and so our left brain starts working more and so that need to be bored um, is really critical to creativity. Uh, the third thing is we want to be different. 
We live in a world that's mass-produced, and so that's why you see things nowadays like Etsy, where people are, you know, creating their own things and using their own gifts and selling that, and it's everything's starting to not be so mass-produced. Um, technology has changed the way we feel time, and that came with electricity. It changed our sleeping patterns. We no longer rise with the sun and, um, you know, go to sleep with the sun, but we stay up late on our phones, and <clears throat> and so. She really encouraged just that we stop and feel time, feel it move, feel the silence. Um, and the fifth thing is, is that we periodically want to be forgotten, specifically when we're wrong. Um, yes. And so those are kind of the five things that technology has changed. So what does this mean? Um, I think she said, you know, keeping the first list of those five basic human needs in mind, what technology hasn't changed, will delight our users on a basic need. And I think here at TRI we do that, essentially. We have communities of practice. We have, within our grant projects, we are provided with communities. Um, and then she said, if you could just focus on one of those second lists, of that second list of five things, um, you're going to go beyond those basic human needs and really delight your user and just kind of focus in on one of those. So there we go. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Shelby. Hmm. So Gail and Shelby kind of covered the broad themes really well, and a lot of a lot of interesting points were made in their presentations. But you might be thinking right about now, what exactly does that mean for my work at TR? Uh, this is this is delightful. It's fun, but it's very abstract. And uh, so for the, the rest of our presentation, Shurston, Eric, and, and I are going to try to show you some specific tangible examples of what delight might look like for our work at TR. And when you think about teaching research, you know, we design and support human service systems. It's right in our mission statement, which I think is awesome, actually. I read it for the first time in years the other day, and it's like, yeah, that's, I can get behind that. It's a good mission statement. Um, so our opportunities, we, you know, we're a people organization. We don't sell widgets on the internet, and that's our, you know, our only touch point is email and, you know, spam. Uh, we have many touch points: uh, the web, uh, uh, printed documents, um, conferences, trainings, you know, uh, speaking engagements, things like that. The written word, social media, uh, and those are all opportunities for us to delight our customers. And our customers are. A lot of people. That might actually be the problem with the the biggest problem that TR faces. Our customers are parents, teachers, you know, state projects, uh, OSEP, uh, ourselves, other projects. I do a lot of work internally for other projects. I consider you my customers sometimes. But uh, so it's it's how to delight those different customer segments that I think is probably one of our biggest uh, biggest issues, uh, biggest challenges challenges I will say. So let me get into uh, a couple of examples that um, we have done with projects here at TR around the web because that's my, I think that's my area of expertise. Uh, and I'll sh kind of talk about what, what it was we did, the problems we solved, and, and how we solved them. So the first one is uh, what Gail and I like to call the NCDB app panel. And this solved a, a real pain point uh, because uh, the NCDB has five websites. We've got the NCDB main website, the mothership. We've got a uh, deafblind literacy website, a family leadership website, and we've got uh, intervener recommendations website, and last but not at all least, the open hands, open access 
uh, Intervenor Learning Modules website. Five websites for one project. And then on top of that, we've got dozens and dozens of digital assets and products that uh, our customers use on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, depending on, on where they're at. Um, how do you get to all of those? How do you unify those? How do you, pre how do you bring all those together and present them as the NCDB project or the NCDB network? We are the NCDB. Here we are. <laughs> and we've got this constellation of stuff. So, it, and this was stuff that's been developed over years. So these five websites that I'm talking about, they weren't developed, we didn't sit down one day and go, we're going to make five websites and they're going to look like this and they're all going to be unified. Uh, they've been developed over three years. It, different times, different stages for different purposes by different people. So, you know, unifying those for our users has been a real challenge. Um, and we're far from done. But here's, here is what we did. Let's see, so, this is the NCDB homepage. Now, what everybody seemed to want, what we were hearing from our users was, I can't find X. I don't know how to get to the literacy site. Can we put it on the homepage? You know, and you're like, well, Okay, we can put one or two things on the home page, but when you get, you know, get 15 requests for things on the home page, pretty soon you see a pattern and you go, this is not sustainable. We can't do this. Um, we have other things we want to put on the home page. So we took a, a cue from Google and did an app panel. So it's, it's simple. It didn't take long to develop. It took, took a little while to plan, but development time was pretty quick. And it's just up there in the corner on every screen in this site. And you can get to all of our other properties and our major uh, digital assets like the DeafBlind Child Count and our um, resources in Spanish um, and our products. You can get to those from this little app panel. Not only that, if you go to the literacy site, there it is again. You can get back. You can get to all of our properties from all of our properties. I think I did that in the intervener recommendations too. Yep, there it is. So it's a it's a little first step, and as I believe Gail mentioned, uh, or she hinted at this, one of the takeaways uh, for me anyway from the conference was, don't don't set up these grand plans for change. They typically don't work. They're very hard to pull off. Um, start small. Take that one step and then reanalyze. Look around. Is this working? Okay, let's try another step and try another step and iterate. And then after five years, you'll you most likely be where you want to be. Your big goal will be very close to being realized uh, just by taking those small incremental steps. Jeff, how did you orient people to where that was? Right, that's a very good question. What, and that is, that's something we're, we're still kind of looking at. What we've done for now, and you won't see it here because, well, I won't explain that, but what happens is if you have not used this feature before, when you land anywhere on the NCDB website, a little bubble will pop up right here and it'll say, hey, look at me, I'm new. Here's what I do, okay, and, you know, close me, right? So we've all seen that. So that's one thing that happens. I wish I could demo it. Uh, and if you land on the home page, you see this big ad right here, which people, we found most of our users are used to looking in this area. They, they get to a lot of things from, from these three uh, little ads there, if you will. And so we put it right here. 
uh, new app feature, quick access to NCDB's digital products, try it now, boom. So that sort of gives you, oh, it's over there, okay. And ideally, they see the icons and they might recognize it as they go through the sites. So, um, I mean, I think the first time I used Google's little square icon was probably six months ago. They probably had it up there for three years. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> but I saw it, I go, what's that? Oh, that's cool. Oh, okay, now I got it. So. Um, and the site, we, do, we did the site news out to all the users. That's right, yeah. We, we, have, a, we have a news, you know, one-page simple thing that we send out to all the registered users on our site periodically, you know, just to re-explain features. It's just part of trying to help people understand, remind them, oh, these are bookmarks. So, so this time it was about, you know, check this out. So mm -hmm. we, that's, that's another way that we tried to reach out. Yes. But I don't think it's, you know, unless people are really, you know, under, use Google a lot and use that, they, I mean, they may recognize them. It might be a sort of a mirroring, I don't know. Well, see, and see when we take away that, that top bar, <laughs> how, how things go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, a lot of these things spread through word of mouth. You know, one person discovers it, and they feel good about it, and they tell it to somebody else. Oh, did you know you could get to the literacy site just by clicking that little box up there? You know, I knew something that you don't. <laughs> and it's, so there's ways that these things can spread virally, you know, without us specifically going to every person saying, hey, look over here. Um, I think so, if we revisited at, at DB Summit again in July, we'll revisit it. Um, but I bet you that, our, that younger, for younger users, it's more intuitive. Um, for for like a lot of our network of state deafblind project people, it's it's less. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a matter of just you know putting it there. Right, and that's that that goes back to figuring out how to delight your different audience segments, and that's a tricky one. Sometimes you just you, I would argue, sometimes you can't please you know delight all your audience segments at the same time. But you try to do what you can, and then then uh, fall back and analyze. And do you have a counter on that app? Well, we, we look at analytics uh, in a lot of different places, two of which are, uh, well, we've got, we've got some back-end analytics that we've custom-made. Uh, there's Google Analytics and there's Mixpanel Analytics. So we can track, you know, what Google Analytics does. Um, and then we can track actual click rates or, ac you know, where, where something on the screen was actually clicked. And we do that right now with Mixpanel, although you can do it with, with analytics if you want to. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, we're trying, you can almost hire a full-time FTE just to look at your numbers behind a site like this and, yeah. and give you ideas for, for where to go. So we're, we're trying to do it as we can and, and incrementally get better at it. But. Um, so my next example is uh, the Oregon QRAS project, the Quality Rating and Improvement System. And Gail mentioned something that kind of stuck with me, and I think it was like uh, grants can be very prescriptive. And we do get locked into that mindset. Here's what the grant tells me to do. I did it. I'm done. And one of the things, I, I assume anyway, that the QRS grant stipulated was, you know, as, as uh, child care programs go through your process, you know, they need to be listed. They need to be, their information needs to be available. Tom's sort of nodding. <laughs> it, kinda, it needs to be available to the general public to find. Um, and uh, so, you know, they got, uh, the project got busy. There's a lot of, lot of programs getting on board. Um, said, we got to get this up. Okay, the, the quickest, easiest thing to do is make a PDF and slap it on the website. 
And everybody could have said, you know, hey, high fives all around, good work, you know, let's, let's go, go on to the next thing. But they didn't stop there because uh, this got the job done, but if I'm a parent, this isn't delightful. Um, <laughs> what, is the, what is the absolute antithesis of delight? Uh, this, this. So what we did instead was, you know, we let this sit out there for a while. We got that part done. Okay, good. But we, we recognized almost immediately we got to kind of move forward with something else. And so we went ahead and migrated all that data, and we, we continue to as new programs come on board. Um, migrated all that to a searchable database and made a nice interface for the web. And uh, it's really cool. You come here and you can uh, do your zip code and, you know, brings up your programs, tells you what, what they're rated. There's a five-star program. Uh, you can get a map. Where is this place? Oh, there it is. Okay. It's near my house, actually. <laughs> oh, and it's bilingual. Well, that's kind of cool. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, this, this uh, you, you got their contact information, phone number, email address, the uh, director, who's the director, and I'll show you, I want to get to this one particular program. Yeah, RCDC. So as you click on a program name, this comes up. So it gives you some more information about the program, more contact information, uh, their little quality badge, and um, a little, little blurb about what they do. They can put anything in there. It could be a brag statement from a from a client. It could be some quotes. It could be, here's our services, here's our hours of operation, or whatever. The, the, the center uh, has total control over what they put in there. So this pleases, you know, this is delightful for two constituencies, you know, parents and the programs, ideally, um, because it gives them a little bit of, of bragging room. Um, again, this wasn't this wasn't difficult to implement. It was, I think, about three days worth of development and coding and to, to get it rolled out. So it's not a huge deal. This didn't take months and months of planning and, and uh, work to make happen. Um, but it's incremental. Again, we might, we might iterate beyond this at some point. It's hard to say. And I think I have taken up my time, so I will turn it over to Eric. And he will talk about delight in the print realm, design, graphic design. Yep. Let me, I'll let you. Get your thing. All right. So, one of the things I took away from uh, this conference in terms of delight was uh, when I was applying it to graphics and design and formatting and and all the things that I've been working on for the last year and a half. Um, and some of the things that, um, that stood out to me when I started thinking about it was the chance to invoke uh, in your consumers um, different emotions or thoughts. And these are the things that I came up with. Um, if you can convey a sense of, uh, if they can feel confidence in you, um, if you convey a sense of professionalism, um, if they can relate to you, um, and then your, if your entity ends up becoming trustworthy, if they trust you to do the job that uh, you have been hired to do. Uh, and in graphics, 
sometimes people get lazy or complacent or they just don't know any better, but clip art is the furthest example away from those topics. It's not professional, it's not, there's no care, there's no thought, there's no investment. And even on a subtle level, people understand that. When they look at something and they've seen it only one time, that's important to them, it's special. It's, uh, it ties back into the sense of identity. You know, if you go on one website and you see a picture and you go, oh, that's really cool, then you go on to someone else's website maybe two months later and it's the same image, you're like, what? But they're not unique, it's not impressive. And so auto, the, just a little bit, those two websites go down in your mind just a little bit. Um, and these are examples at the QRS and the uh, Center on Early Learning and how uh, custom icons are replacing clip art and other things that, uh, to kind of boost our um, sense uh, just a little, uh, a little bit in people's minds. Uh, consistent look and feel. On the left you have, uh, I think this is the, um, this is the interveners. IEP guide. IEP it's guide. It's for teams to, in schools to use to determine whether or not a, a child needs an interview. Perfect. So Peggy came to me and said, hey, can you make this look better? And so, on, and, and before, you have a lot of people putting out Word documents and other things like that. Um, if this side, uh, what we put out was a consistent look and feel with some color and some uh, check boxes that break up the flow and show you exactly uh, a visual hierarchy of what you're trying to get through. Like, oh, check boxes, yes and no, I relate to that, I've seen them before. Um, and a, and a, you relate to um, the different sections are color-coded with the same icon on the top left. And all of the, uh, this becomes part of a user experience that's more pleasurable and enjoyable and delightful um, to work your way through. Even if it's, you know, you're filling out something, one more form in your life. Uh, visually supports content. Another way that things can delight are, are giving you a sense of um, of an experience. And this is the open hands, open access uh, poster I did that takes these modules and gives you a visual uh, experience uh, relating to a journey. It's, uh, um, it's graphically, emotionally, um, it helps you invest in a little bit on a different level than just reading, you know, oh, here's a list of these different modules. Um, the response to this, by the way, was very good. When, yeah. we, when we shared it at, at our project director's meeting, at our gathering, uh, again, we had been talking about the modules. And these people that we are partnering with have helped create those modules. They're invested in them, and it's, but they still couldn't picture all the journey. They might be invested in the one module that they helped create, but they couldn't put it all together in their heads. Mm -hmm. And so what I really valued in meeting you was was talking about that journey and also helping people have a way to wrap their mind around they're a part of something bigger you know what Shelby was talking about their work is very meaningful even if they've just contributed one learning activity or one video or one set of pictures from their own children they could see my my contribution is a part of this bigger bigger community work and so I really liked what you created. Thank you. This is, this is an excellent example of bringing uh, 
bringing the scope of uh, the larger picture together and then seems to work out just perfectly. Um, in terms of design, some things that are more, uh, I don't know, formal, um, things that, that help people enjoy the experience, white space, typography, and kind of a logic path of working your way through something. Um, composition and typography, these are two examples that I was trying to show that not um, content doesn't need to be overwhelming. Sometimes your focal point and your hierarchy just needs to be one thing to really showcase what you're trying to do. A little play on words, opportunity, knocks kind of thing gets people engaged and if they have a sense of discovery inside your material then they almost own it in a certain way. Um, that's important for creating delight. Um, this little bookmark is for the QRS top five. Typography can be really powerful, top five, and you remember five because it's so big and so bold and loud. Um, there's not really any graphics on it, but at the same time it's visually pleasing with the zigzag going back and forth and creates interest. There's different ways you can create interest and involvement investment. Um, user experience in terms of layout and design. This is the QRS homepage. Uh, we thought of um, how to make this easy for two very different um, groups of people and we're like, give them two doors. Real simple. So on the homepage, if you're an early learning program, you click on the left. If you're a parent or family, you click on the right. And it's a very simple way to implement a um, divergence of um, populations and it's no clutter, it's very visually pleasing. pleasing and people can get where they need to go um, by following a very logical um, set of questions uh, or answering those questions. And that's what I got. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. Okay, so I'm gonna be talking about the written word and social media. And while these seem like two fairly separate categories, you can go get a degree in either one of them if you'd like, um, pretty much everything at the conference applied to both because ultimately they're both just forms of communication. Um, it's a great quote from Stephen King. He was not at the conference, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but he said, writing is telepathy. And he gives an example where he sets forth a riddle and he gives you all of the things and he said these objects are on a table and they're these different colors and a window is broken and he figures it out and he kind of guides you to the answer and you get the answer and he said this is the answer and he said wow you didn't have to say a word that went from my brain to your brain I didn't have to do anything and so writing is a way of getting our brains to connect and the goal of delightful writing and of good writing is to get ideas from my brain into your brain with as little noise and as little interference as possible so one of the biggest things you can do to make your writing delightful is just to simplify and pare down. A lot of the time when people are writing, they get very overwhelmed at the idea that they're writing and they have to sound a certain way and appeal, you know, appear a certain way. And if you simplify, you tend to get much closer to delight. Um, Sean Amin from Uber, he had advice that was for business, but that I think is very applicable to writing and social media. Figure out the most important problem and fix it. Don't chase after everything at once. Um, and this applies, you know, in any kind of writing you might do. Pick one idea 
and then go with it. Have one Facebook post and go with it. And if that triggers another idea for you and you say, oh my goodness, I want to talk about this, write another article, do another post. Um, it's a much easier way to organize your ideas and also makes you look more productive, which is always great when you're trying to populate a website, populate social media. Um, another idea for simplifying is to provide fewer immediate choices and ideas. Um, Gail talked about Steve Mulder from NPR and he experimented the layout and the structure of a window that pops up when you listen to NPR. If you go listen to a story, this window pops up and it looks just like a little navigation panel. There's a back and a forward and your volume controls. And he experimented with this. His original design was to give users more control and more choices. And so while you were listening, different links would pop up and you could go to other stories and it would connect you to all sorts of different things on the site. Um, and so his theory was that if there were fewer immediate choices and that box was more simple, people would actually listen to whole stories and people would listen longer. And so he streamlined this, he pulled out the recommendations. When you were done, it would recommend you to one story. And uh, he found that people did listen significantly longer because they weren't being distracted. And so simplifying can also give you attention. And attention is the currency in the information age. And so simplifying can really bring that home for you. And then also just the idea that less is more, but prune wisely. You want to have as little as you need to, but you also need to really cover your subject. One of the best examples of this, and I love this, is from Facebook. Um, somebody who came from Facebook, Jonathan Coleman, he was talking about how difficult it is to write a good error message and to write all the good little microcopy that you see on Facebook that tells you that your post went wrong or that tells you where you need to post or that says, hey, we have new privacy settings. He said microcopy is really hard and that great copy answers your questions before you have them. So you have this error message, sorry, there's a temporary issue with your post, please try again in a minute. And you, as somebody who, if your post goes wrong, you're gonna wanna know, did I do something wrong? Am I gonna lose my work? Is this a huge problem? And is this gonna take a really long time? And so this answers, sorry, there's a temporary issue. Okay, not my fault, that's Facebook's problem. Will I lose my work? It's with my post, but please try again, so it's probably okay. And how long will this take? In a minute, that just means there was a little glitch. Try it again in a minute, you'll be fine. And this also addresses emotions. Um, your post goes wrong, you're gonna feel fear, you're gonna feel anxiety, and as soon as that's relieved, you feel relief. And of course, you're impatient to do this again because we're all impatient when we're online. And so that in a minute says, okay, I can do this again soon, I don't have to come back in an hour. So another way to really bring delight to your writing is just to be authentic. Um, Gail talked about Harvard and how they had to kind of let go of control on their social media. One of the things that they had been doing on the social media pages that they owned and on other people's social media, they tried to really control how pictures of their president were put out there. They had a lot of staged photo ops and they had a lot of, you know, sitting like this in a portrait. And it just, it wasn't very human and it wasn't very appealing, but it was professional and it was safe. And when she came in, she decided that she was going to step back from this. She was going to make it a little bit easier. And so she allowed candid shots to go up and she actually arranged for candid shots to go up. And so she, you know, she showed several pictures of these shots and it's so much more human and it's so much more engaging. And it got to the point where when celebrities visited Harvard, they would post selfies of themselves with the Harvard president. Um, and they found that that did a lot to make them feel more human and to be more engaging. And then also have fun and be friendly. One of my favorite presentations was from, and I have to look at his name here, it's from Reef Tuma. He's the creator of Die November. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, it started when he and his wife, they were very busy and they realized they weren't spending as much time with their kids as they wanted to. They weren't having those meaningful interactions and, you know, but they had several little kids and it's exhausting. And one night as they were going to bed, 
they, uh, you know, they just, they were tired and his wife, she spilled toothpaste or something and they just didn't want to clean it up. But there was a little plastic toy and so she just put it on there like the dinosaur had done and went to bed. You know, there wasn't time. And in the morning, they didn't think anything of it, but in the morning, their kids came running and going, Mom, Dad, you are never going to believe what happened. And they dragged them in there and they said, the dinosaurs did this. And they said, oh, well, this could be fun. And so every night for the month of November, they had their dinosaurs create messes. They would get little plastic dinosaurs and it escalated pretty quickly. He showed pictures of, you know, they spilled over a box of cereal. And the next day they tried to make pancakes and so there were broken eggs all over their kitchen and piles of flour. And the kids were getting suspicious and they said, you know, we think it's you. I don't think the dinosaurs are doing this. So they colored all over their walls in markers and they destroyed a corner of their home and you know, just colored everywhere. And they said, would the dinosaurs have done that? And their kids were sold. And so this was really, really fun. And a huge community sprang up around this. Um, there are websites of people doing Dinovember just as a way to believe in children's imaginations and a way to you know, bond families around something really, really silly. And this has been hugely successful. He's got a book. He's been able to spin this off into a lot of really rewarding things just because it was fun and it was friendly. Um, and then the last thing was a Facebook content principle, talk like a person. Um, and this is, this is a place where delight tends to disappear entirely. We get lost in jargon. We get lost in trying to make ourselves sound smart. We get lost in trying to touch all of our bases and saying so much that we don't need to. And so you just, you want to talk like a person. One of my favorite examples are 404 pages when your page isn't found on a website. This one, ah, this page doesn't exist. Not to worry, you can either head back to our homepage or sit there and listen to a goat scream like a human. <laughs> and when you log onto this page, when you land on this page, if your sound is up, you get a sound. I don't know if you've heard these bleeding goats, but they sound like humans being tortured. Um, and it's hysterically funny. And if you go look up um, just clever 404 pages, you're gonna find millions of these and they're fantastic because they're very human and they realize that it's, you know, it's annoying to land on a site, so may as well have fun with it. And then another thing that you can do, and this is so important, is to tell authentic stories. Uh, focus on stories of delight and connection that didn't originate in a marking office. And this is from Maggie Lane Kimpton Hotels. And she had a wonderful story. Um, part of the message at Kimpton Hotels, part of their branding, is to create delightful experiences for anybody who comes. And so they, they arrange little surprises. They allow dogs in their lobby. They have fresh chocolate chip cookies in their lobby every day. Just little things. And she told this story, they give, um, they give everybody in their company full power to do whatever they need to. So the valet can comp a room if he needs to, um, you know, the housekeeper can send wine to a room if she needs to, just to make that person's experience better. And there was one story of somebody who came and they called ahead because they said, um, I've always wanted to come to California, I've always wanted to go whale watching, and now I'm coming to California, but I can't go whale watching because I have cancer and I need to find out, you know, if your rooms, if I can get hypoallergenic everything and if these supports will be available to me. So I said, yeah, of course. And when this woman got there, there was a little stuffed whale sitting in her bedroom with a really thoughtful note saying, hey, we know this is rough, but you know, just keep on going, we're all behind you. You know, you got this, come whale watching next time. And she, you know, she emailed them a couple years later when she actually went whale watching and said that that had, you know, that had been a huge thing for her. And so of course, they've told this story because this is a real thing that happened and it was real people, real emotions, a real impulse from an employee who said, oh, that's really rough. And he wanted to make that better. Um, and then some really great advice that I think is good when figuring out what to write and also figuring out what to post on social media is to share a story that exemplifies the brand. What do you guys like when you're your best selves? And one of my favorite examples at TRA, um, I don't know who's read it, but Carol Dennis wrote an article about the Education Evaluation Center. 
and it is fabulous and it is so authentic and so real. I'm just going to read a little excerpt. She said, when I was first asked to write a blog post about the Education Evaluation Center at TRI, I expected to find out about the list of tests and assessments they use, the data they collect, and the medical names of diagnoses checked off their clients' files. Instead, I found a group of passionate people who take the time to reach into the hearts and souls of everyone who walks through their door on a mission to answer a lifetime of gnawing questions about what might be keeping that individual from blossoming completely. I have family members who could have used the services they provide, whose lives could have been so different than what they are today if they had just found an organization like the EEC. The more I spoke with the staff, the more I knew I was in the company of people who have chosen to do what they do, because to do anything else would, to be betray, would be to betray their own hearts and souls. And Carol came to my office with this beginning and she said, is this too much? Is this too personal? And I said, no, keep this forever. <laughs> And it's, you know, and it's beautiful because it's so authentic and it's something that she was genuinely passionate about and that she was being vulnerable to the point that she wasn't sure if she should share that. And because of that, it was really, you know, I found it very moving. And so when you're trying to figure out again, when you're trying to figure out what to write, what to share that's going to, you know, have an impact on people, the first thing is to ask is what do people want? And this question is important. Um, Maggie Ling from Kimpson Hotels, she said that sometimes we skip this step because we're afraid that we're not going to be able to deliver. So we don't ask people what they want. And she said, ask anyway, you might be surprised. And then once you've done that, go a little deeper and ask, what do they need? Um, there are emotions behind every want. Every time someone says they want something, they really want a feeling that they're going to get from having something. So at TRI, someone may come to the Education Evaluation Center and say that they want an evaluation done. Or they may come to the QRIS and say that they want to have a star-rated quality program. But what they really want is security, they want support, they want validation, they want encouragement, they want these emotional states and we can write to those. And if we write to those, we're going to reach a huge spectrum of people who may need all sorts of different specific things from us, but they all come to us because they need support. And they come to us because they feel alone and they need to not feel alone. And that's it for us. We have some resources. There are videos up from the conference. I would recommend <coughs> you check them out. They're really good. And yeah, anybody else? Okay, so don't have any questions? Is this gonna be available on our website? Yes. Yeah, I'm also going to prune my notes from the conference and make them available as well. Can I just say this was really meaningful to me. I feel like a lot of this stuff that we covered today will really help mm -hmm. kind of guide Developing the future presentation. Mm. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. 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 Yeah.